Chapter Thirteen of Capital Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Four. Production of Relative Surplus Value Chapter 13. Cooperation Capitalist production only then really begins, as we have already seen, when each individual capital employs simultaneously a comparatively large number of laborers, when consequently the labor process is carried on on an extensive scale and yields relatively large quantities of products. A greater number of laborers working together at the same time in one place, or, if you will, in the same field of labor, in order to produce the same sort of commodity under the mastership of one capitalist, constitutes, both historically and logically, the starting point of capitalist production. With regard to the mode of production itself, manufacture, in its strict meaning, is hardly to be distinguished, in its earliest stages, from the handicraft trades of the guilds, otherwise than by the greater number of workmen simultaneously employed by one and the same individual capital. The workshop of the medieval master handicraftsman is simply enlarged. At first, therefore, the difference is purely quantitative. We have shown that the surplus value produced by a given capital is equal to the surplus value produced by each workman multiplied by the number of workmen simultaneously employed. The number of workmen in itself does not affect either the rate of surplus value or the degree of exploitation of labor power. If a working day of twelve hours be embodied in six shillings, twelve hundred such days will be embodied in twelve hundred times six shillings. In one case, twelve times twelve hundred working hours, and in the other, twelve such hours are incorporated in the product. In the production of value, a number of workmen rank merely as so many individual workmen, and it therefore makes no difference in the value produced whether the twelve hundred men work separately or united under the control of one capitalist. Nevertheless, within certain limits, a modification takes place. The labor realized in value is labor of an average social quality, is consequently the expenditure of average labor power. Any average magnitude, however, is merely the average of a number of separate magnitudes all of one kind, but differing as to quantity. In every industry, each individual laborer, be he Peter or Paul, differs from the average laborer. These individual differences, or errors, as they are called in mathematics, compensate one another, and vanish whenever a certain minimum number of workmen are employed together. The celebrated sophist and sycophant, Edmund Burke, goes so far as to make the following assertion, based on his practical observations as a farmer, that is, that in so small a platoon as that of five farm laborers, all individual differences in the labor vanish, and that consequently any given five adult farm laborers taken together will in the same time do as much work as any other five. Footnote. Quote, Unquestionably, there is a good deal of difference between the value of one man's labor and that of another, from strength, dexterity, and honest application, but I am quite sure, from my best observation, that any given five men will, in their total, afford a proportion of labor equal to any other five within the periods of life I have stated, that is, that among such five men there will be one possessing all the qualifications of a good workman, one bad, and the other three middling, and approximating to the first and the last, 
so that in so small a platoon as that of even five you will find the full complement of all that five men can earn. End quote. E. Berg, Locusiteto, pages 15 and 16. Compare Catalette on the average individual. End footnote. But, however that may be, it is clear that the collective working day of a large number of workmen simultaneously employed, divided by the number of these workmen, gives one day of average social labour. For example, let the working day of each individual be twelve hours. Then the collective working day of twelve men simultaneously employed consists of one hundred and forty-four hours, and although the labour of each of the dozen men may deviate more or less from average social labour, each of them requiring a different time for the same operation, yet since the working day of each is one-twelfth of the collective working day of 144 hours, it possesses the qualities of an average social working day. From the point of view, however, of the capitalist who employs these twelve men, the working day is that of the whole dozen. Each individual man's day is an eloquent part of the collective working day, no matter whether the twelve men assist one another in their work or whether the connection between their operations consists merely in the fact that the men are all working for the same capitalist. But if the twelve men are employed in six pairs, by as many different small masters, it will be quite a matter of chance whether each of these masters produces the same value, and consequently whether he realizes the general rate of surplus value. Deviations would occur in individual cases. If one workman required considerably more time for the production of a commodity than is socially necessary, the duration of the necessary labour-time would, in his case, sensibly deviate from the labour-time socially necessary on an average, and consequently his labour would not count as average labour, nor his labour-power as average labour-power. It would either be not saleable at all, or only at something below the average value of labour-power. A fixed minimum of efficiency in all labour is therefore assumed, and we shall see, later on, that capitalist production provides the means of fixing this minimum. Nevertheless, this minimum deviates from the average, although on the other hand the capitalist has to pay the average value of labour-power. Of the six small masters, one would therefore squeeze out more than the average rate of surplus-value, another less. The inequalities would be compensated for the society at large, but not for the individual masters. Thus the laws of the production of value are only fully realized for the individual producer when he produces as a capitalist and employs a number of workmen together, whose labor, by its collective nature, is at once stamped as average social labor. Footnote. Professor Rosher claims to have discovered that one needlewoman employed by Mrs. Rosher during two days does more work than two needlewomen employed together during one day. The learned professor should not study the capitalist process of production in the nursery, nor under circumstances where the principal personage, the capitalist, is wanting. End footnote. Even without an alteration in the system of working, the simultaneous employment of a large number of labourers affects a revolution in the material conditions of the labour process. The buildings in which they work, the storehouses for the raw material, the implements and utensils used simultaneously or in turns by the workmen, in short, a portion of the means of production are now consumed in common. On the one hand, the exchange value of these means of production is not increased, for the exchange value of a commodity is not raised by its use value being consumed more thoroughly and to greater advantage. On the other hand, they are used in common, and therefore on a larger scale than before. A room where twenty weavers work at twenty looms must be larger than the room of a single weaver with two assistants. 
but it costs less labour to build one workshop for twenty persons than to build ten to accommodate two weavers each. Thus the value of the means of production that are concentrated for use in common on a large scale does not increase in direct proportion to the expansion and to the increased useful effect of those means. When consumed in common, they give up a smaller part of their value to each single product, partly because the total value they part with is spread over a greater quantity of products, and partly because their value, though absolutely greater, is, having regard to their sphere of action in the process, relatively less than the value of isolated means of production. Owing to this, the value of a part of the constant capital falls, and in proportion to the magnitude of the fall, the total value of the commodity also falls. The effect is the same as if the means of production had cost less. The economy in their application is entirely owing to their being consumed in common by a large number of workmen. Moreover, this character of being necessary conditions of social labour, a character that distinguishes them from the dispersed and relatively more costly means of production of isolated, independent labourers or small masters, is acquired even when the numerous workmen assembled together do not assist one another but merely work side by side. A portion of the instruments of labour acquires this social character before the labour process itself does so. Economy in the use of the means of production has to be considered under two aspects. First, as cheapening commodities, and thereby bringing about a fall in the value of labour power. Secondly, as altering the ratio of the surplus value to the total capital advanced, that is, to the sum of the values of the constant and variable capital. The latter aspect will not be considered until we come to the third book to which, with the object of treating them in their proper connection, we also relegate many other points that relate to the present question. The march of our analysis compels the splitting up of the subject matter, a splitting up that is quite in keeping with the spirit of capitalist production. For, since, in this mode of production, the workman finds the instruments of labour existing independently of him as another man's property, economy in their use appears, with regard to him, to be a distinct operation, one that does not concern him, and which, therefore, has no connection with the methods by which his own personal productiveness is increased. When numerous labourers work together side by side, whether in one and the same process or in different but connected processes, they are said to cooperate or to work in cooperation. Footnote: Concours de force, d'estude tracy, Locusiteto, page eighty, end footnote. Just as the offensive power of a squadron of cavalry, or the defensive power of a regiment of infantry, is essentially different from the sum of the offensive or defensive powers of the individual cavalry or infantry soldiers taken separately, so the sum total of the mechanical forces exerted by isolated workmen differs from the social force that is developed when many hands take part simultaneously in one and the same undivided operation, such as raising a heavy weight, turning a winch, or removing an obstacle. Footnote. Quote, there are numerous operations of so simple a kind as not to admit a division into parts which cannot be performed without the cooperation of many pairs of hands. I would instance the lifting of a large tree onto a wain. Everything, in short, which cannot be done unless a great many pairs of hands help each other in the same undivided employment and at the same time. E.G. Wakefield, A View of the Art of Colonization. London, 1849 page 168 and footnote in such cases the effect of the combined labor could either not be produced at all by isolated individual labor or it could only be produced by a great expenditure of time or on a very dwarfed scale 
not only have we here an increase in the productive power of the individual by means of cooperation but the creation of a new power namely the collective power of masses footnote Quote, as one man cannot and ten men must strain to lift a ton of weight yet one hundred men can do it only by the strength of a finger of each of them End quote. john betters proposals for raising a college of industry london 1696 page 21 and footnote apart from the new power that arises from the fusion of many forces into one single force mere social contact begets in most industries an emulation and a stimulation of the animal spirits that heighten the efficiency of each individual workman hence it is that a dozen persons working together will in their collective working day of one hundred and forty four hours produce far more than twelve isolated men each working twelve hours or than one man who works twelve days in succession footnote quote, there is also when the same number of men are employed by one farmer on three hundred acres instead of by ten farmers with thirty acres apiece an advantage in the proportion of servants which will not so easily be understood but by practical men for it is natural to say as one is to four so are three to twelve but this will not hold good in practice for in harvest time and many other operations which require that kind of dispatch by the throwing many hands together the work is better and more expeditiously done for instance in harvest two drivers two loaders two pitchers two rakers and the rest at the rick or in the barn will dispatch double the work that the same number of hands would do if divided into different gangs on different farms End quote. an inquiry into the connection between the present price of provisions and the size of farms by a farmer london seventeen hundred seventy three pages seven and eight and footnote the reason of this is that man is if not as aristotle contends a political at all events a social animal footnote strictly aristotle's definition is that man is by nature a town citizen this is quite as characteristic of ancient classical society as franklin's definition of man as a tool-making animal is characteristic of yankeedom and footnote although a number of men may be occupied together at the same time on the same or the same kind of work yet the labor of each as a part of the collective labor may correspond to a distinct phase of the labor process through all whose phases in consequence of cooperation the subject of their labor passes with greater speed for instance if a dozen masons place themselves in a row so as to pass stones from the foot of a ladder to its summit each of them does the same thing nevertheless their separate acts form connected parts of one total operation they are particular phases which must be gone through by each stone and the stones are thus carried up quicker by the twenty-four hands of the row of men than they could be if each man went separately up and down the ladder with his burden footnote Quote, on doit encore remarquer que cette division partielle de travail peut se faire quand même les ouvriers sont occupés du même poisson des maçons par exemple occupés à faire passer de main à main des briques à un échauffadage supérieur font tout la même besogne et pourtant il existe parmi eux une espèce de division de travail qui consiste en ce que chacun d'eux fait passer la brique par un espace donné et que tous ensemble la font parvenir beaucoup plus promptement à l'endroit marqué qu'ils ne le feraient si chacun de portait sa brique séparément jusqu'à l'échauffadage supérieur. F. Scarbeck, 
Théorie des richesses sociales, Paris, 1839, volume 1, pages 97 and 98, and footnote. The object is carried over the same distance in a shorter time. Again, a combination of labor occurs whenever a building, for instance, is taken in hand on different sides simultaneously. Although here also the co-operating masons are doing the same or the same kind of work. The twelve masons, in their collective working day of 144 hours, make much more progress with the building than one mason could make working for twelve days or 144 hours. The reason is that a body of men working in concert has hands and eyes both before and behind, and is to a certain degree omnipresent. The various parts of the work progress simultaneously. In the above instances we have laid stress upon the point that the men do the same or the same kind of work, because this, the most simple form of labor in common, plays a great part in cooperation, even in its most fully developed stage. If the work be complicated, then the mere number of the men who cooperate allows of the various operations being apportioned to different hands, and, consequently, of being carried on simultaneously. The time necessary for the completion of the whole work is thereby shortened. Footnote. Quote, Est-il question d'exécuter un travail compliqué Plusieurs choses doivent être faites simultanément. L'un en fait une, pendant que l'autre en fait une autre, et tout contribuant à l'effet qu'un seul homme n'aurait pu produire. L'une rame pendant que l'autre tient le gouverné, et qu'un troisième jette le filet en harpon le poisson. Et la pêche a un succès impossible sans ses concours. In many industries, there are critical periods determined by the nature of the process during which certain definite results must be obtained. For instance, if a flock of sheep has to be shorn, or a field of wheat to be cut and harvested, the quantity and quality of the product depends on the work being begun and ended within a certain time. In these cases, the time that ought to be taken by the process is prescribed, just as it is in herring fishing. A single person cannot carve a working day of more than, say, twelve hours out of the natural day, but one hundred men cooperating extend the working day to twelve hundred hours. The shortness of the time allowed for the work is compensated for by the large mass of labor thrown upon the field of production at the decisive moment. The completion of the task within the proper time depends on the simultaneous application of numerous combined working days. The amount of useful effect depends on the number of laborers. This number, however, is always smaller than the number of isolated laborers required to do the same amount of work in the same period. Footnote. Quote, the doing of it, agricultural work, at the critical juncture is of so much the greater consequence. End quote. An inquiry into the connection between the present price, etc. Page 9. Quote, In agriculture, there is no more important factor than that of time. End quote. Liebig, Über Theorie und Praxis in der Landwirtschaft. 1856, page 23. End footnote. It is owing to the absence of this kind of cooperation that, in the western part of the United States, quantities of corn, and in those parts of East India, where English rule has destroyed the old communities, quantities of cotton are yearly wasted. Footnote. Quote, the next evil is one which one would scarcely expect to find in a country which exports more labor than any other in the world, with the exception, perhaps, of China and England the impossibility of procuring a sufficient number of hands to clean the cotton. The consequence of this is that large quantities of the crop are left unpicked, 
while another portion is gathered from the ground when it has fallen, and is of course discoloured and partially rotted, so that for want of labour at the proper season the cultivator is actually forced to submit to the loss of a large part of that crop for which England is so anxiously looking. End quote. Bengal Hukaru, bi-monthly overland summary of news, 22nd July, 1861, and footnote. On the one hand, cooperation allows of the work being carried on over an extended space. It is consequently imperatively called for in certain undertakings, such as draining, constructing dikes, irrigation works, and the making of canals, roads, and railways. On the other hand, while extending the scale of production, it renders possible a relative contraction of the arena. This contraction of arena, simultaneous with and arising from extension of scale, whereby a number of useless expenses are cut down, is owing to the conglomeration of labourers, to the aggregation of various processes, and to the concentration of the means of production. Footnote. In the progress of culture, quote, all, and perhaps more than all, the capital and labour which once loosely occupied five hundred acres, are now concentrated for the more complete tillage of one hundred, end quote although, quote, relatively to the amount of capital and labour employed, space is concentrated, it is an enlarged sphere of production, as compared to the sphere of production formerly occupied or worked upon by one single independent agent of production. End quote. R. Jones, An Essay on the Distribution of Wealth, Part 1, On Rent, London, 1831, page 191, and footnote. The combined working day produces, relatively to an equal sum of isolated working days, a greater quantity of use values, and, consequently, diminishes the labour time necessary for the production of a given useful effect. Whether the combined working day, in a given case, acquires this increased productive power because it heightens the mechanical force of labour, or extends its sphere of action over a greater space, or contracts the field of production relatively to the scale of production, or at the critical moment sets large masses of labour to work, or excites emulation between individuals and raises their animal spirits, or impresses on the similar operations carried on by a number of men the stamp of continuity and many-sidedness, or performs simultaneously different operations, or economises the means of production by using common, or lends to individual labour the character of average social labour. Whichever of these be the cause of the increase, the special productive power of the combined working day is, under all circumstances, the social productive power of labour, or the productive power of social labour. This power is due to cooperation itself. When the labourer cooperates systematically with others, he strips off the fetters of his individuality and develops the capabilities of his species. Footnote. Quote, la forza di ciascuno uomo è minima ma la riunione delle minime forze forma una forza totale maggiore anche della somma delle forze medesime, fino a che le forze per essere riunite possono diminuire il tempo ed accrescere lo spazio della loro azione. End quote. G. R. Carly, Note to P. Veri, Loxeteto, Volume 15, page 196, End footnote. As a general rule, labourers cannot cooperate without being brought together. Their assemblage in one place is a necessary condition of their cooperation. 
Hence, wage-laborers cannot cooperate unless they are employed simultaneously by the same capital, the same capitalist, and unless, therefore, their labor-powers are bought simultaneously by him. The total value of these labor-powers, or the amount of the wages of these laborers, for a day or a week, as the case may be, must be ready in the pocket of the capitalist before the workmen are assembled for the process of production. The payment of three hundred workmen at once, though only for one day, requires a greater outlay of capital than does the payment of a smaller number of men, week by week, during a whole year. Hence the number of laborers that cooperate, or the scale of cooperation, depends, in the first instance, on the amount of capital that the individual capitalist can spare for the purchase of labor-power. In other words, on the extent to which a single capitalist has command over the means of subsistence of a number of laborers. And as with the variable, so it is with the constant capital. For example, the outlay on raw material is thirty times as great for the capitalist who employs three hundred men as it is for each of the thirty capitalists who employ ten men. The value and quantity of the instruments of labor used in common do not, it is true, increase at the same rate as the number of workmen, but they do increase very considerably. Hence, concentration of large masses of the means of production in the hands of individual capitalists is a material condition for the cooperation of wage laborers and the extent of the cooperation, or the scale of production, depends on the extent of this concentration. We saw in a former chapter that a certain minimum amount of capital was necessary in order that the number of laborers simultaneously employed, and, consequently, the amount of surplus value produced, might suffice to liberate the employer himself from manual labor, to convert him from a small master into a capitalist, and thus formally to establish capitalist production. We now see that a certain minimum amount is the necessary condition for the conversion of numerous isolated and independent processes into one combined social process. We also saw that at first the subjection of labor to capital was only a formal result of the fact that the laborer, instead of working for himself, works for and consequently under the capitalist. By the cooperation of numerous wage laborers, the sway of capital develops into a requisite for carrying on the labor process itself into a real requisite of production. That a capitalist should command on the field of production is now as indispensable as that a general should command on the field of battle. All combined labor on a large scale requires, more or less, a directing authority in order to secure the harmonious working of the individual activities, and to perform the general functions that have their origin in the action of the combined organism, as distinguished from the action of its separate organs. A single violent player is his own conductor. An orchestra requires a separate one. The work of directing, superintending, and adjusting becomes one of the functions of capital, from the moment that the labor under the control of capital becomes cooperative. Once a function of capital, it acquires special characteristics. The directing motive, the end and aim of capitalist production, is to extract the greatest possible amount of surplus value, and consequently to exploit labor power to the greatest possible extent. Footnote. Quote, Profits is the sole end of trade. End quote. J. van der Lint, Loco Citato, page 11. End footnote. As the number of cooperating laborers increases, so too does their resistance to the domination of capital, and with it the necessity for capital to overcome this resistance by counter-pressure. The control exercised by the capitalist 
is not only a special function due to the nature of the social labor process and peculiar to that process, but it is at the same time a function of the exploitation of a social labor process and is consequently rooted in the unavoidable antagonism between the exploiter and the living and laboring raw material he exploits. Again, in proportion to the increasing mass of the means of production, now no longer the property of the laborer, but of the capitalist, the necessity increases for some effective control over the proper application of those means. Footnote. That Philistine paper, The Spectator, states that after the introduction of a sort of partnership between capitalist and workmen in the Warwick Company of Manchester, quote, the first result was a sudden decrease in waste, the men not seeing why they should waste their own property any more than any other masters, and waste is, perhaps, next to bad deaths, the greatest source of manufacturing loss. Quote. The same paper finds that the main defect in the Rochdale cooperative experiments is this, quote, They showed that associations of workmen could manage shops, mills, and almost all forms of industry with success, and they immediately improved the condition of the men, but then they did not leave a clear place for masters. End quote. Quelle horreur! End footnote. Moreover, the cooperation of wage laborers is entirely brought about by the capital that employs them. Their union into one single productive body and the establishment of a connection between their individual functions are matters foreign and external to them, are not their own act, but the act of the capital that brings and keeps them together. Hence the connection existing between their various labors appears to them ideally in the shape of a preconceived plan of the capitalist, and practically in the shape of the authority of the same capitalist, in the shape of the powerful will of another, who subjects their activity to his aims. If, then, the control of the capitalist is in substance twofold by reason of the twofold nature of the process of production itself, which, on the one hand, is a social process for producing use-values, on the other a process for creating surplus-value, in form that control is despotic. As cooperation extends its scale, this despotism takes forms peculiar to itself. Just as at first the capitalist is relieved from actual labor so soon as his capital has reached that minimum amount with which capitalist production, as such, begins, so now he hands over the work of direct and constant supervision of the individual workmen and groups of workmen to a special kind of weight laborer. An industrial army of workmen, under the command of capitalist, requires, like a real army, officers, managers, and sergeants, foremen, overlookers, who, while the work is being done, command in the name of the capitalist. The work of supervision becomes their established and exclusive function. When comparing the mode of production of isolated peasants and artisans with production by slave labor, the political economist counts this labor of superintendence among the faux frais of production. Footnote. Professor Cairns, after stating that the superintendence of labor is a leading feature of production by slaves in the southern states of North America, continues, quote, The peasant proprietor of the North, appropriating the whole produce of his toil, needs no other stimulus to exertion. Superintendence is here completely dispensed with. End quote. Cairns, Loco Citato, pages 48 and 49, and footnote. But, when considering the capitalist mode of production, he, on the contrary, treats the work of control made necessary by the cooperative character of the labor process as identical with the different work of control necessitated by the capitalist character of that process and the antagonism of interests between capitalist and laborer. Footnote. 
Sir James Stewart, a writer altogether remarkable for his quick eye for the characteristic social distinctions between different modes of production, says, quote, Why do large undertakings in the manufacturing way ruin private industry, but by coming nearer to the simplicity of slaves? End quote. Principles of Political Economy, London, 1767, Volume 1, pages 167 and 168. End footnote. It is not because he is a leader of industry that a man is a capitalist. On the contrary, he is a leader of industry because he is a capitalist. The leadership of industry is an attribute of capital, just as in feudal times the functions of general and judge were attributes of landed property. Footnote. Auguste Comte and his school might therefore have shown that feudal lords are an eternal necessity in the same way that they have done in the case of the lords of capital. And footnote. The labourer is the owner of his labour-power until he has done bargaining for its sale with the capitalist, and he can sell no more than what he has, that is, his individual, isolated labour-power. This state of things is in no way altered by the fact that the capitalist, instead of buying the labour-power of one man, buys that of one hundred, and enters into separate contracts with one hundred unconnected men instead of with one. He is at liberty to set the one hundred men to work without letting them cooperate. He pays them the value of one hundred independent labour-powers, but he does not pay for the combined labour-power of the hundred. Being independent of each other, the labourers are isolated persons, who enter into relations with the capitalist, but not with one another. This cooperation begins only with the labour process, but they have then ceased to belong to themselves. On entering that process, they become incorporated with capital. As cooperators, as members of a working organism, they are but special modes of existence of capital. Hence, the productive power developed by the labourer when working in cooperation is the productive power of capital. This power is developed gratuitously whenever the workmen are placed under given conditions, and it is capital that places them under such conditions. Because this power costs capital nothing, and because, on the other hand, the labourer himself does not develop it before his labour belongs to capital, it appears as a power with which capital is endowed by nature, a productive power that is imminent in capital. The colossal effects of simple cooperation are to be seen in the gigantic structures of the ancient Asiatics, Egyptians, Etruscans, etc. Quote, it has happened in times past that these Oriental states, after supplying the expenses of their civil and military establishments, have found themselves in possession of a surplus which they could apply to works of magnificence or utility, and in the construction of these their command over the hands and arms of almost the entire non-agricultural population has produced stupendous monuments which still indicate their power. The teeming valley of the Nile produced food for a swarming non-agricultural population, and this food, belonging to the monarch and the priesthood, afforded the means of erecting the mighty monuments which filled the land, in moving the colossal statues and vast masses of which the transport creates wonder, human labour almost alone was prodigally used. The number of the labourers and the concentration of their efforts sufficed. We see mighty coral reefs rising from the depths of the ocean into islands and firm land, yet each individual depositor is puny, weak and contemptible. The non-agricultural labourers of an Asiatic monarchy have little but their individual bodily exertions to bring to the task, 
but their number is their strength, and the power of directing these masses gave rise to the palaces and temples, the pyramids and the armies of gigantic statues of which the remains astonish and perplex us. It is that confinement of the revenues which feed them, to one or a few hands, which makes such undertakings possible. End quote. Footnote. R. Jones, Textbook of Lecturers, etc., pages 77 and 78. The ancient Assyrian, Egyptian, and other collections in London and in other European capitals make us eyewitnesses of the modes of carrying on that cooperative labour. And footnote. This power of Asiatic and Egyptian kings, Etruscan theocrats, etc., has in modern society been transferred to the capitalist, whether he be an isolated or, as in joint stock companies, a collective capitalist. Cooperation, such as we find it at the dawn of human development among races who live by the chase, or, say, in the agriculture of Indian communities, is based, on the one hand, on ownership in common of the means of production, and, on the other hand, on the fact that in those cases each individual has no more torn himself off from the navel string of his tribe or community than each bee has freed itself from connection with the hive. Footnote. Lingue is improbably right when in his Théorie des lois civiles he declares hunting to be the first form of cooperation, and man-hunting, war, one of the earliest forms of hunting. And footnote. Such cooperation is distinguished from capitalistic cooperation by both of the above characteristics. The sporadic application of cooperation on a large scale in ancient times, in the Middle Ages and in modern colonies, reposes on relations of dominion and servitude, principally on slavery. The capitalistic form, on the contrary, presupposes from first to last the free wage-laborer who sells his labor-power to capital. Historically, however, this form is developed in opposition to peasant agriculture and to the carrying on of independent handicrafts, whether in guilds or not. Footnote. Peasant agriculture on a small scale and the carrying on of independent handicrafts, which together form the basis of the feudal mode of production, and after the dissolution of that system continue side by side with the capitalist mode, also form the economic foundation of the classical communities at their best after the primitive form of ownership of land in common had disappeared, and before slavery had seized on production in earnest. And footnote. From the standpoint of these, capitalistic cooperation does not manifest itself as a particular historical form of cooperation, but cooperation itself appears to be a historical form peculiar to, and specifically distinguishing, the capitalist process of production. Just as the social productive power of labor that is developed by cooperation appears to be the productive power of capital, so cooperation itself, contrasted with the process of production carried on by isolated independent laborers, or even by small employers, appears to be a specific form of the capitalist process of production. It is the first change experienced by the actual labor process when subjected to capital. This change takes place spontaneously. The simultaneous employment of a large number of wage-laborers in one and the same process, which is a necessary condition of this change, also forms the starting point of capitalist production. This point coincides with the birth of capital itself. If, then, on the one hand, the capitalist mode of production presents itself to us historically as a necessary condition to the transformation of the labor process into a social process, so, on the other hand, this social form of the labor process presents itself 
as a method employed by capital for the more profitable exploitation of labour by increasing that labour's productiveness. In the elementary form under which we have hitherto viewed it, cooperation is a necessary concomitant of all production on a large scale, but it does not, in itself, represent a fixed form characteristic of a particular epoch in the development of the capitalist mode of production. At the most it appears to do so, and that only approximately, in the handicraft-like beginnings of manufacture, and in that kind of agriculture on a large scale which corresponds to the epoch of manufacture, and is distinguished from peasant agriculture mainly by the number of the labourers simultaneously employed, and by the mass of the means of production concentrated for their use. Footnote. Quote, whether the united skill, industry, and emulation of many together on the same work be not the way to advance it, and whether it had been otherwise possible for England to have carried on her woollen manufacture to so great a perfection. End quote. Berkeley, the Querist, London, 1751, page 56, paragraph 521, and footnote. Simple cooperation is always the prevailing form in those branches of production in which capital operates on a large scale, and division of labour and machinery play but a subordinate part. Cooperation ever constitutes the fundamental form of the capitalist mode of production. Nevertheless, the elementary form of cooperation continues to subsist as a particular form of capitalist production, side by side with the more developed forms of that mode of production. End of Part 4, Chapter 13